0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 222. And this episode was recorded in New Jersey, in Sussex County, in a place called Sandyston. And particularly, it was recorded at a place called Luna Park, and that's Park with a C. Luna Park is the home of artist Ricky Boscarino. But it's not just a home. It is also a living, breathing art installation, and it is a museum. And on his grounds is also the Luna Park Atelier Foundation, where Ricky gives workshops and artists can come to stay as interns and work on the grounds. It is an incredible, incredible home. I really can't put what the experience is like into words. So I am going to recommend that you go online. You either go to my social media or you go to Luna Park. And again, that's parkwithac.com. So you can take a look at the things that we're talking about. The home looks like something out of a story. It's part Dr. Seuss, part adventure novel. Each level, and there are 11 levels, not 11 stories, but 11 levels. Each level has its own feel and kind of like theme to it. There is a room, the science room that is full of animal skulls and bugs and snakes and science books. And it looks like something from like an old adventure club. There are these old societies in New York City that are actually still around. And it reminded me of that, or like something from one of like the classic adventure novels, like Treasure Island. And floor-to-ceiling is covered in repurposed materials that have been turned into collages and mosaics. Ricky makes his own stained glass. He paints. He does ceramics. There are ceramic mugs all over the place. It is unreal. I mean, the roof has a balcony with wind chimes and other repurposed materials that Ricky has made. He does the electric, he does the carpentry. There is a room of items that Ricky has brought back from his travels throughout Asia. And there are two giant wooden, almost like like barn doors, that he flew back from China. And in that room, in the floor, and in a portion of the floor that is clear so you can see through it, there's a space to one day put Ricky's ashes so that he will forever be in this home. He's been working on it since 89. So we're talking over 30 years of work he's put into this project, and he's still working on it. It's one of the coolest places that I've been, and I feel so fortunate that he allowed Les and I to come by to, to meet him, to record with him, and to get to explore the grounds. So again, I recommend that you go online and you pull up Either my social media or really probably his website or I'll link to some videos and things like that and I'm going to put some videos on YouTube just so you have an idea of what we're talking about here because it's really incredible. You'll find his website in the show notes for this episode where you will also find a link to my Patreon account and that's a subscription service where you can give monthly with some cool kickbacks. Right now I have... My second zine, which numbers are dwindling down, but if you're a Patreon supporter, you you get one of those. And when I say dwindling down, I mean once those 100 are gone, they're probably gone. I don't know if I'm going to reprint them. So things like that and stickers and, and shirts and stuff. If you can't participate in Patreon, it'd be great if you could tell a friend, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff really helps to get some eyes on this podcast. But for now... Enjoy this conversation with Ricky Boscarino of Luna Park. Well, first of all, thank you for for having us here. This feels really special. Um, And uh, we're quite fortunate to get to go to a lot of really cool places. And this feels like one of the coolest I've been to. So, <laughs> Ooh, I, thanks I so much. That. Thank
1: you. <laughs> Are you uh, originally from New Jersey? Uh, yes. So, uh, born and raised in uh, New Jersey. Um, I was born in um, uh, Patterson, and then um, grew up in Central New Jersey in Piscataway, and then um, I had gone away to uh, college. I went to the uh, Rhode Island School of Design, and I lived in A couple places, and then moved back to the air. This area in 1985. So I, I definitely claim New Jersey are mm. de- is definitely my my roots. Okay, were mom and dad artists? Well, yes. Um, I wouldn't. They weren't like professional artists, uh, but um, my dad was an amazing carpenter, and um, my mom had a. She was sort of like a like a visionary a visionary decorator. So she would come up with these these ideas for um, like a window treatment, like a valance of something like that. And some of them were just, you know, pretty interesting and amazing. This is like in the 60s and 70s. And anything my mom could dream up, my dad could build. And that's what I grew up with is the house was always in this like perpetual state of redecorating and mm. rebuilding and remodeling uh, but all like all handmade stuff. I mean, it wasn't like manufactured, um, I don't know, wall treatments. You know, everything was all handmade in the house. My mom loved pottery, so I grew up knowing ceramics. In fact, uh, some of these were my mom's. Oh, mattered, cool. so, um, so I always knew what pottery was. Uh, and uh, so we grew up in this household of... People making things, and um, both sides of the family, and then um, so the the Boscarino side, the Sicilians, literally were amazing craftspeople and carpenters.
0: And you've and they, traced your family back to the Medici's, is that
1: yeah? True? So uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we were peasant carpenters to the Medici, and um, uh, so uh, yeah, we, I've carried on this this lineage of making and making and doing. So, uh, but then on my mom's side, they were more like Southern, Southern Italy. And, um, so, uh, then they were artists and kooky thinkers. Like they were all like feuding with each other, Mm. very passionate. So with this, that kind of aspect, and then the Sicilians who were like amazing carpenters, you know, uh, well, actually I have two sisters and they're both artists also. So it was a really good household to grow up in.
0: Yeah, so maybe like part nature, part nurture, right? Because it seems like you you maybe have some artistic talents in your bloodline but then if you were surrounded by like everything that you just said about mom, it's like, oh, clearly that rubbed off on him because I could see that here.
1: Yeah, well, I, it was funny because I... Uh, I uh, had uh, painted a good part of the house, and then realized, oh, wait a minute, that's the ha- that's the color that I grew up with in yeah. the sixties. <laughs> so uh, you know, it definitely made an impression. But um, uh, every every aspect of this house is somehow derivative of of my upbringing in some mm. way. I mean, craftsmanship was you know it was expected actually.
0: Mm. You know, we we did this uh, a bit of a tour before we started recording and looking around, I can see things that either like I envisioned as I read something or something that I would think was like a direct influence. So like being up on the roof, looking around, it's like whimsical, almost in like a Dr. Seuss way, like a a Horton here's a who type of a thing. (laughs) But then when I was in your room, like your science
1: room. The nature lab.
0: Yeah, the nature lab. like It makes me think of like like a Robert Louis Stevenson novel or like I used to watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was a kid with my dad and like Uh is this submarine with like all these like wild scientific devices and and animals and things like that which is what you have here. Um, Do you think there's any of that in your brain, like old stories that you've read as a, as a kid?
1: Well, uh, as a as a young kid, well, actually not even just young, but all the way through high school, um, I had some um, learning, not a learning disability, like a reading disability. So mm-hmm. I haven't really read much. I haven't really read many novels in my entire life. Okay. I probably list, you know, five that I've read cover to cover. Uh-huh. But... I would immerse myself in anything visual, like when I was like old enough to pick up a, a hammer, or you know, I taught myself how to solder when I was really young, and um, and because I grew up in this Italian uh, carpentry family, we had all kinds of tools. We had every tool imaginable in our basement. So I learned how to use power tools when I was probably six, I mean, maybe not six, but like seven wow. easily. <laughs> so uh, so I was always, that's, that was my salvation, was making things. Uh. I would make furniture, I would make things for the wall. And uh, so I don't know if it was a, in compensation. It, uh, if I had to say compensation, that means like I'm comparing. But my, my strength was always making things. And I could visualize, and I still do that, uh-huh. um, I can visualize something in my head without doing a drawing and just build it.
0: Yeah, it's funny because we obviously come from the world of education and you were thinking along the lines of like, well, that's a learning disability. But clearly, and like maybe you might not say this about yourself, but clearly like there's there's like genius level work being done here. And it's interesting that like if somebody doesn't fit into that compact mold of like what we think they are, even from the educational lens. It's like, oh, there's there's something off or wrong about that. Right. Where it's right, exactly. like but or they <laughs> are incredibly talented at this one thing that you're not taking into account.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm sure I would have been a much better student had I gone to say if there was Montessori back in the 60s and mm-hmm. 70s or some other kind of you know Waldorf or, you know, whatever, alternative learning. Um, but Things still worked out okay. Yeah. <laughs> so regardless, so I'm not even complaining about that. But uh, but it was more of a struggle then because my mother was kind of distraught because you know I could I would have uh, Ds Cs and Bs where the teachers always said that I could be uh, you know a straight A student like my sisters mm. if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't care. I didn't care about reading. I didn't care about school. I just wanted to make things. So I was uh, like, for example, in high school, I was, when I graduated, um, I got uh, a scholarship because I was the top art student, right. you know? So, um, so, you know, it all works out in the end. I mean, but uh, I, uh, and I still don't read very much now. I, uh, I make stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm jumping the chronology of
0: how I think I'm going to ask you questions, but this made me think of uh, talking about your mom and your family. What do they they think of your home? What do they think of Luna Park?
1: So when I first found this property, uh, they actually came up to celebrate with me for the day of my closing. So they saw it literally the very first day that I owned it, and they thought it was great. Mm. They could easily see the potential because the property was beautiful. The house was a big dilapidated mess, but um, I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved this house. As soon as I laid eyes on this house, and like I said, it was dilapidated. Uh, It didn't need anything major structural, but as soon as I laid eyes on the house, I knew that this would be the place I'd spend the rest of my life. So I was only 28 years old, And with that youthful enthusiasm (laughs) and with my confidence of my skills that I had learned and had been working with my whole life, I knew that, you know, this could be anything. Mm. And I knew that I was on an adventure.
0: What were you doing? Like, where were you at in life? I guess it's a weird way to phrase that. But uh, when you bought the house, were you working a career?
1: Uh, Yeah. So I was, um, I had a a jewelry business with... um, uh, this woman that I had apprenticed for, a jewelry jewelry apprentice, a uh, long time ago when I was a teenager, actually, and we became business partners, and she lived up here. And that's kind of how I got up here in the first place. Um, I had um, uh, put myself through one year of the um, NYU graduate film program. Oh, okay. That was in 1985 to 86. And um, it was great, and I loved filmmaking, and I was doing films as a kid. Uh, But I realized there's no way I'm going to be able to afford continuing. So it was kind of the chance, uh, you know, became partners uh, with this woman. We had a great business for, you know, several years, at least the first like five years. And it allowed me to um, uh, establish a good down payment. Mm. And then from there... I realized that now's the time to put down roots. And I was always kind of like a homebody too. Like I always loved home, my room as a kid. And um, so it was kind of natural for me to really want to put down roots. And I love the area. Went to summer camp literally like a mile from here. Yeah, there's a lot of woods and parks and it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's state forest right here. My property borders state forest up there. So, So yeah, I was like, why not? Yeah, You know, what I was doing was taking my work on the road. So it didn't matter where I did it, I would sell it on the road. So why not be in the country, in the middle of the woods, making stuff and then take it on the road, yeah. which I've done for years. I know you knew that there was potential here,
0: but did you, what did you initially envision that the house and the property would become?
1: Well, that's... Uh, well, it needed all the practical stuff. First of all, there was no heat in the house, there was no insulation, it had really like crappy windows. Mm. So the first couple months were you know, pretty much um, gutting and getting practical things because that was in June of 1989 and it was only going to be a couple months before winter was going to be upon me. So I really was pushing and pushing. I had to finish, at least close in the house again. So, uh, so that's kind of, that kind of took over, like the practical, practical aspect. But literally within the first week that I lived here, I had painted the house like primary colors. And it was kind of funny because it was this, this like dilapidated uh, little cabin. And I just like slapped coats of paint on it. And... Um, all of a sudden the uh, neighbors um started noticing that something's going on over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't uh it hasn't stopped. So <laughs> but um oh but uh, like I said uh there was no master plan. Uh, the only thing I'd say that was significant like I said is that I knew that this would be the place I'd spend the rest of my life. So anything I did basically would be a legacy. And um, so if there was any master plan, that was it, that I knew that I would be here for the rest of my life. Now, fast forward to something. So uh, I was just showing you that um, I built this uh, glass uh, capsule in the floor for my ashes. Mm. So what inspired this was uh, when I was traveling in Spain many years ago, went to the Salvador Dali Museum, and uh, he's buried in the museum under this marble slab. And I thought, "Oh my God, that's fantastic to be to be buried in your own museum. And that's about the time I thought, well, I, I'm going to be in here." So I was trying to figure out what what and how. And I figured, well, why not be on display? So that that's a um, three quarter inch piece of glass, and then I'll be put inside this, you know, mounted into the, into the floor. And then uh, the foundation is instructed that get my ashes in there and then arrange all that furniture so that basically my ashes will then be a little like a carpet and then seal me up. And then there I am in perpetuity as a display in the museum as well. So...
0: I saw that. I was wondering if there was significance to the setup of the furniture, like the reason
1: why you had two rocking chairs... Uh, did
0: you have any thought process behind well, that? Well,
1: the, um, the the furniture um, layout will, will will change. In fact, uh, I'll be putting up, uh, I have dollhouse wallpaper. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, it'll be all, you know, decked out with wallpaper and pictures, uh, photographs. And I'll probably actually make the furniture eventually. So what's in there probably is not going to be like, you know, long term. So, I mean, I... I I have a a plan um, to live to at least 106. Nice. So um, (laughs) what's significant about that is I had this uh, mentor. uh, Her name was Beatrice Wood. She was a potter. She lived in um, uh, California. And I had met her. She was 101 when I met her. And I I told her I wanted to be just like her when I grew up. So, uh, and she lived to 106. So, um, and my grandmother lived to 103. So it's definitely a good possibility. Yeah. So I figure I just turned sixty, so I have uh, at least forty-six years. And um, and uh, uh, so um, you look a lot younger than sixty. I know. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I we definitely have longevity and um, good genes, especially on my mom's side. I mean the. The people, men and women on my mom's side, just have like amazing skin and beautiful hair and really, uh, you know, really look good. The problem is that Alzheimer's and dementia is a big problem. So a lot of times people live like my grandmother lived to 103, but um, she was really pretty far gone and a lot of the old relatives really, there's not much there once Mm. they get really, really old. So... So this all becomes a museum.: Yes. So uh, about six years ago, I established a nonprofit foundation, certified 501 C3 uh, foundation. It's called the Luna Park Atelier Foundation. And uh, our mission is art education you know, just plainly, art education. Our focus is on uh, high school and college-age students uh, some kind of underprivileged, under, underappreciated students who want to uh, pursue a career in the arts. So uh, we were able to secure the house. We bought the house next door. My neighbors had abandoned it. And that is the foundation's headquarters where we um, house our visiting artists and our interns. So we, we sponsor uh, students. They, they can come and live here for a few weeks. They're immersed in any project that's going on. Whatever I'm working on at any given time, basically that's their curriculum. And, um, and they, you know, let them, um, uh, you know, they learn themselves, they do projects for themselves as well. And uh, so um, the ultimate goal of the foundation, which is why I bring this up in the first place, is that um, uh, the foundation will then inherit everything. This okay. whole project will then be, um, you know, owned by the nonprofit. So I told my the board at our first board meeting, we had a room full of people. It was like filled with people. I was kind of describing what the nonprofit was going to be, and I told them that on my uh, 95th birthday, I will sign over the deed to my house to the foundation, and then they get the whole house and they get me. For the rest of the time. So, <laughs> so it'll be, uh, the intent was that it'll be maintained as a museum, art space, um, uh, school, craft school. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to evolve, you know, over the years also. In addition to those, like, artist residents, have you
0: ever had anyone reach out to, you? Uh, I don't know, Writers, artists, to say like, "Hey, I'd like to come
1: stay there for a bit." Well, we've had we've had a we had a poet in residence, yeah, oh, a couple cool. of years, uh, two years ago, I guess. And yeah, it's open to. Uh, I mean, may, our, our main um, mission is uh, visual arts, but we're not opposed to any arts. Like, if someone really wants to come here and we're we don't have a regular intern, we have this house next door, and uh, yeah, so we're always welcoming. Um, artists of any discipline really
0: well because I guess there's been uh, like actual studies on some type of science of like feng shui right like that's not necessarily what I'm talking about here but I can see just how anyone in a creative field just by being here and spending some time here it would foster like more creative thinking like yeah have you felt that for you
1: yeah for sure um no, we have, um, I have lots of school groups that come here. Of course, not last year, but, uh, but the, uh, we have local um, high schools that come. We have some that come from pretty far away, like from South Jersey, like three hours on a bus each way. And uh, no matter what, if, it's, uh, if they come here and they're doing a, um, like a little project or something like that, that's really great. But if it's just, you know, a tour and a pep talk... Um, that's pretty profound too for a, for a lot of kids, mm. I would say most kids, I mean our culture have never really experienced like anything like this. I mean a lot of, a lot of adults who have never experienced, yeah, you know coming here and and witnessing art in action. You know, this is a living, breathing organism that's always changing and uh, evolving, um you know because of my my own personal energy, but um it's, um, you know, I, I know even just exposing kids like we were talking to would be, would be a great thing. Does your brain ever
0: turn off? Because the, <laughs> the reason I ask is, you know, I, I think it was online that I saw like you have like a, a jar of bread tabs from, uh, you know, bags of bread. And you say like this will become... A mosaic someday and I could yeah, I I trust now being here that like you would turn that into something beautiful. Um but is your brain always going like when you see things that you're thinking I could turn this into something?
1: Unfortunately, yes, it's <laughs> always going. <laughs> so um yeah, I've always had trouble sleeping. Even as a kid, I had trouble sleeping. Um because uh you know, basically it's like I am so excited during the day mm. doing things, racing from project to project. And, um, and um, yeah, there's some nights I'm like a little kid. I just don't want to go to sleep. I just wish I could stay up and keep working and doing and playing and, you know, whatever. Uh, um, you know, it, it's not all fun and games here. And I tell the kids this too when they come visit, that it all looks like fun and games, yeah. but the reality is... It's only 50% fun in games, and then the rest of it is just really like hard work and stuff you don't even see, like managing the finance, you know, the financial aspects of running a business, um, going on the road and selling things, all the you know the endless computer work or you know whatever goes into running a business, mm. and um, and that's not really fun. For me some people i' mean I, but I'm good at it. I taught myself how to run an art business or my mm. art business. I don't know about if it would be uh, universal <laughs> for every art business, but this, you know I can run the business so uh so there's that aspect of it that's uh you know it's it's another part of the the brain yeah that I've come to uh kind of um exercise and i uh and I know how that that side of it works. We were mentioning death before.
0: Um, I noticed this before we came, I noticed when we were here, and then you were also talking about thematically uh, within the living art project that we're sitting in now, there are themes of, of life and death and fertility. Um, I guess, why? Where does that come from?
1: Well, I would say some of it uh, comes from my upbringing of uh, growing up in a uh, Italian Catholic family that you're exposed to angels and and uh, miracles and, you know, anything that's all the trappings of, of pretty much uh, most religions are about life and death and afterlife and so on and so on. So, um, but... Um, what was the question again? <laughs> Sorry.
0: Uh, just sort of just thematically um, oh, the use yes. of, okay. of 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 uh, fertility and death. yeah,
1: so um, so uh, we were speaking earlier about my uh, kind of my my life as a scientist also. Mm. And I've always been fascinated, but with biology and reproduction. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I was uh, really interested in uh, you know, plant grafting. I would graft plants and to make, you know, new you know, new species or, you know, whatever I was doing at the time. Uh, so um, so life and death has always been an interesting theme. Mm. I've always loved skeletons. So this skeleton actually is one of my favorites, a full skeleton, it's about uh, 200 years old. Oh. And uh, so I've always collected bones and skulls. So it was kind of this interest... I guess it would be kind of considered macabre, but, but more like in a science way. I loved bones and skeletons and skulls. How did you get a full human skeleton? Well, I had been looking for years and um, it was kind of funny. That, and I knew that like on eBay generally you can't sell right. remains. But because this one was an, an antique, uh, it was able to be um, um, auctioned. And no one else bid on it. I was the only bidder on this one. This is probably about mm, twenty years ago, I think I've had this. And uh, I know I was so excited when I won the auction. i was I was really excited. Now, what's also kind of interesting is that over the years, people have given me human bones also. I have another skull. actually, I have two skulls. Oh, in, yeah, there I can in the see. Nature Lab. I have some arms and legs from other skeletons. So I've acquired and teeth and all kinds of things. So, um, you know, so, so death is um, kind of a running theme. And then I've always been uh, kind of fascinated and um, kind of uh, in a humorous way with um, human reproduction or in reproduction in, in general. So downstairs, on a, there's a mural of. Um, The the Miracle of Creation, which I don't think we've seen yet, but uh, I'll point it out. So it's a a mosaic mural depicting um, fallopian tubes in ovaries and sperm uh, in um, uh, fertilization,
0: Uh fertilizing
1: the the ovum. So, uh, yeah, and if you look around the house uh, outside, there's a lot of uh, depictions of... um, sperm and ovaries and penises and vaginas and, you know, things like that, which uh, sometimes people um, people are not, you know, it's funny, <laughs> people are uh, funny when it comes to um, reproduction. It's a very American thing to be like sex obsessed, but also like really weird yeah, and yeah, coy a about it. Shy about it. Yeah, right, right yeah. exactly, being fascinated by... Uh, whatever you know human anatomy but you know horrified by it at the same time you know but
0: kind of on that topic I noticed um, primarily from looking online that there are things that are kind of hidden here so like lights in the shape of, I guess it's Pleiades constellation and uh, like the Fibonacci equation. Uh, I guess like in the movie business, especially like Marvel films and stuff like that, they call that Easter eggs. And there's like a whole industry now of people making like videos about, I found these Easter eggs in this film. Um, When you do eventually pass one day, are there any of those like Easter eggs that you haven't made people aware of that people might discover?
1: Well, the entire house, inside and out, is shrouded in mysteries. Yeah. So, so camouflaged in the mosaic and some of the sculptures are uh, uh, puzzles, like mathematical puzzles, the magic squares, Mm. uh, which originated in China and in Arabic, mathematics, like, simultaneously. And uh, so I have things like that, um, that, like you mentioned, the Fibonacci equation, which is right here under this window, and uh, symbols of alchemy. There are um, uh, expressions in Latin, in Morse code, in different languages. Uh, In fact, right in front of us, right here, uh, so this line right here, this is Morse code. Just make sure you're speaking to the mic. Yes, sorry. Sorry. Yes. Um, So, uh, so that line right there in front of us, right in front of my um, my uh, uh, my fireplace, is uh, Morse code. Now, generally, I will tell people, uh, like when kids ask what it means, I say, "Well, look it up on the internet, and then you tell me what it means." But I'll tell you, because I don't (laughs) know if you're (laughs) proficient in Morse code, but it was my uh, probably my favorite song from the '60s. I got you, babe.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I, like, So, like, if you hadn't said that, right, let's say 300 years in the future, this is still a museum, I wonder if anyone would ever figure that out.
1: You know, there are occasionally, there are people who have been here. This one uh, older man that came here, um, he asked me, he said, is that Morse code? And somehow he knew Morse code and... I said, yes, it is. And then he, you know, he figured it out, like, immediately. But, um, but something in his brain, like, all of a sudden, like, recognized it. So, uh, so that's always fun when people discover things without me having to point them out.
0: This is a stupid question. I always get angry when I see people ask this, but then I always end up asking it because, <laughs> like, does this, I don't know, does this just feel like normal... Like yeah, like of course I did this. Or like, do you recognize like this is quite an extraordinary project?
1: You know, there are times that I look around and like, like, wring my hands and go, (laughs) "Oh my God, how did this all happen?" Um, and then sometimes I think "Mm, it's not quite done. It's not quite enough. So Mm. that is um my crust of air is a. Maximalist. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in the school of maximalism. So uh, that's, um, that's kind of the problem about being a maximalist is that the expectation is to constantly be adding. You know, I'm sure being a minimalist or being satisfied with mediocrity, which unfortunately is our culture in America, people are just basically... Um, they're satisfied with things being mediocre.
0: Mm.
1: And that for me is, that's really a tragedy. I mean, when you travel to Asia, travel to Europe, pretty much any other place in the world where decorative arts are so much a part of the culture uh, and it's somehow along the line in America, that's been lost. You know, there was a probably my favorite period in American art history, which is early 20th century, the arts and crafts movement, where um, a lot of the traditional skills kind of were being revived and things inside the house as, as you know, as insignificant as a uh, a light switch plate or a doorknob or the hinges on a door were all very uh, consciously decorated. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and then through, you know, art history in the twentieth century, um, that kind of got lost, and things got very um, kind of mundane and banal, and uh, I think that's really a tragedy. So, in my house and in our house next door, um, my teachings are that every single object in the house whether it be a fixture or something like that, everything has to be an art piece, mm. you know, and it doesn't matter, uh, like I said, a switch plate or the doorknobs or something about it. Everything should be consciously uh, wrought and and created.
0: Well, it's interesting too to me because it's like some of what you have has been repurposed and like would have just ended up in, in a dump or in the junk pile or something like I see like all of these like, like yardsticks over here um, have become a mosaic in itself.
1: Yeah, I have been hoarding yardsticks and uh, they're actually harder to come by now. Uh, so, uh, so this wall treatment, um, actually I've used all my best yardsticks right here, but um, I still have several other places in the house that uh, this yardstick... Concept is is continuing. So uh, now, like this floor, for example, the floors here in my ballroom. So, if I were satisfied with mediocrity, it would be so much easier to have a normal floor. <laughs> yeah. But this is my this is my cross to bear that I just had to have a beautiful uh, parquet floor that I made. So this is all uh, poplar. And it came from, you know, the box stores, um, the poplar. And then um, it's really all just been manipulated, cut apart. And I, I refer to this as a, a wood mosaic, basically. So uh, this entire floor, this whole level three will all be wood mosaic. Did you see the film Knives Out?
0: No. It came out, we just, we just watched it recently, but I guess it came out a year and a half ago or two years ago at this point. Maybe last year. Um, but the home was just really cool, and it had, again, like things hidden within it. I guess that for like the audience to capture. But I'm sitting here thinking, like, have any filmmakers ever reached
1: out to to like use this as the setting in a film? Well, I, I'm kind of holding out for Tim Burton to. Uh, uh, that's a good fit. Use it as a backdrop and and pay me lots of money to do it. Um, but there's been like little features, I mean, plenty of like you know, TV appearances and really? smaller. Uh, smaller little, like, um, home home shows. Uh, definitely done, I've been in a lot of little spots for, you know, for things like that. But, um, yeah, I, um, I'll i probably hold out for something big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, if someone's going to use it in that respect, I, I, it's then probably going it to be one. Right, probably right. only have one big shot at someone to really use the house as a backdrop.
0: Oh, man. In our very small way, we'll have to try to get some some eyes on it then, because that would be awesome. Were you okay? Sorry. Um, when we were in the the kitchen before, you were saying you had like a, a twice annual uh, gathering slash
1: party here. That I was interesting. Uh, well, in. no, that's um, it's um, I, I would call it an open house. It's a public. Oh, okay. A public tour, basically. It's the twice a year that I open the house to the public.
0: Oh okay., no, okay so okay. I try
1: to actually not make it a party because I had to accommodate you know like maybe three to four hundred people a day oh, yeah. when I do this. So I try to get people in and out as as quickly as possible. Um, and it was quite a spectacle. Um, there were cars all the way up and down the road. I would have a staff like fourteen people doing different things, people in the house like as as monitors, getting people, in, up, and out. So it was quite a quite a production every time. And I would do this twice a year. So, um, yeah, I would do it uh, three days in June and three days in October. And uh, towards the end, like in 2019, I had estimated uh, that there was about um, 1,300 people through those three days uh, the last time I did it. Whoa. And... Uh, sounds like a lot of people, but it's a lot of cars. Yeah, yeah. Where (laughs) where did everybody... (laughs) Down the road all the way down to the farm. I mean, it was just like, uh, it really kind of took over the neighborhood. So uh, I don't know what the future will be. I mean, I I do want to have some kind of public access, but I don't think I can continue in that format Mm. because it was very invasive on me and the house and the neighborhood and uh so uh I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, a good thing to have that many people so I'm still trying to figure out how that's gonna morph into a smaller more manageable venue or more scheduled probably more scheduled. Yeah do do people
0: ever sort of just like pop up because they've heard about it and they want to see it? Uh,
1: Occasionally people will, will pop by but um it states pretty clearly on the uh, on my website that you know it's only open during mm. uh, times. But uh, you know, even last year, like through the pandemic, there were people wandering through, and occasionally, even if I'm like up at my house, uh, the workshop, or somewhere in the yard, uh, occasionally there are actually people that will just come into the house thinking that it's some kind of a Whoa. public museum or something. I don't know what they think it is, but. Uh, but they uh, they don't really do the research, and it's usually younger people who uh, just assuming that it's open. Wow! <laughs> so. uh,
0: I wanted to ask you about uh, how you ended up traveling in Asia and what your experiences were like there.
1: I uh, many years ago, I uh, went to school I had, uh, uh, with a friend uh, from Thailand. And she was always saying, "Oh, come, come, come to Thailand; you'll love it." So, uh, so that was in 1987, and I took this. It uh, was like there's six weeks or eight weeks. I forget. I was there, you know, quite a while, uh, and a solo trip. I went to. I visited my friend, but then I traveled all over the country, and I just loved it. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And I never had never experienced anything that. Exotic. I mean I traveled through Europe in college quite a bit, but um but Asia just seemed so foreign and exciting. And then uh I just kept going back when it was all over Southeast Asia and then I went to uh uh India, Nepal and uh Tibet. I've been to Tibet and um, there's something about the Asian culture for me. I guess it's, you know, that I grew up in a much more European mm. family. But Asia was so foreign and so exotic for me. And I loved it. And I love the artifacts. Like I loved going to flea markets in Asia. That's something I always seek out. Um, I was in, uh, I went to uh, Seoul, Korea one year and I I found a hotel that was near this um, antique market, so, so a lot of times I'll, I'll find accommodations I'll find out ahead of time where there are the markets going on yeah. and I'll plan my trip around going there and gathering uh, objects. you know and I, I wouldn't say they're not I wouldn't say it's about shopping, but it's about like gathering and finding artifacts to bring home to my museum, and that's where a lot of a lot of things came from different trips from around the world, really.
0: You said those doors came from China, right?
1: So those are the great doors of China, referred refer to them. And uh, I was traveling, it was actually my first uh, trip to China. I was with my uh, my two sisters, and I had planned on buying a set of doors because I was in the middle of constructing this, this room. And uh, so... Get if I did research ahead of time, but I um, no, probably not. I think what I did was when we when I got there, we were trying to figure out find a um, some kind of a market or a a shop or something to get a set of doors, and uh, this woman in this shop, she's she could see that it was very uh, enthusiastic and really serious. So she arranged a car right then and there, said, I'll take you to our, uh, she called it her storehouse. Well, we get to this, we're driving out of the city of, of Beijing. We're like out in, you know, rural, rural China now. And we come across this series of just these buildings in the middle of like farm fields. And they were filled with the most amazing uh, pieces of buildings, like architectural buildings. Elements, uh, doors and windows and statues and all kinds of stuff that's been mm. salvaged from all over China because this this was in uh, two thousand six, two thousand six, and uh, a lot of China was being dismantled at mm-hmm. the time and uh, this was pre Olympics also, so they were like trying to spruce up all of China and trying to like get rid of some of the old stuff in China. Uh, And um, then all the, the buildings were being torn down. They put all these things in these big warehouses to be sold off, you know, all over the world. So I was very fortunate. I found, we found this place and it was amazing. Like I lost my mind. And I was looking through hundreds of doors and then I saw this one and I knew from the two stones that were at the bottom that those were the ones so uh, and they were about eleven feet tall, and I knew that I had to do a lot of rebuilding to accommodate these. But you know, still to this day, those are probably my most favorite epic purchase. Uh-huh. You know, and then getting them shipped home and um, yeah. So that's uh, that's still one of my favorite things that I've ever acquired overseas.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. You know. I think you said you have 11 levels. Each room, or I guess level really, has its own sort of unique, maybe theme to it is the right word. Um, Do you have a a place in the house or a room or a level that is your favorite place to be?
1: Ooh, well, uh, yeah, no, as, as, as... Biggest uh, the house has gotten, the original little cottage, uh, the zen room that has the round window, is still one of my favorite spots, so although I don't really spend a whole lot of time there. But um, down in the library, which I don't think we've gone there yet. Oh, the library, that'll be cool to see. Yeah, the library is probably, I would say it is my favorite spot uh, in the house, in the new, what I call the new, the wing. Uh, and uh, it's dark. It's kind of in the front of the house so it um it gets northern light. So it's mm. always it's always dark. Plus I painted everything black. All the all the woodwork is black, so it's it's dark and it's cozy. And it's actually the warmest spot in the house in the wintertime, also. So that's my morning. That's definitely my morning spot. Okay. It's the most comforting yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. And there's old books and all my um my geography collection, uh, all my reference and re- resources, everything is in that room. Cool. So, uh,
0: I know that this will be ongoing for as long as you're alive, right? Absolutely. Do you in the do you plan at all? Like in the immediate, like do you think over this next year I'd like to add this addition or there's something specific, some specific project I
1: want to work on, or is it just as it comes? Well, uh, like right now, there's very little traffic in the house since the house isn't open to the public right now. Mm. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of work inside. My telephone uh, installation, mounting all my vintage telephones to that uh, to the window, uh, a grid window, uh, that's been a big project. I've been doing a lot of finishing work. The floors, some of these parquet floors I've been working on. And uh, so I've been taking a lot of... Uh, taking the opportunity to do a lot of finishing work, putting up um, uh, trim on doors and windows that I never, never got to. Mm. You know, I built this 15 years ago. No, wait a minute, more than that, 2005. Uh, 16 years ago was when I built this. So I'm still doing finishing work. So uh, I'm not really building anything major now, but there's plenty of finishing work inside and out. And there's a plenty of maintenance outside. You know, living in the woods, there is always branches and trees falling and there's grass to be mowed, there's gardens to be raked. So there's, there's an incredible amount of maintenance on this house and the foundation house too needs a lot of work. And lately I've been kind of a one-man band, so mm. I've got my hands full. I mean, there's very little resource right now uh so uh, so I've got my hands full right now.
0: Did you do all these paintings of all the people on the wall?
1: Yeah, so all the portraits are mine, and the the few landscapes here, there's more landscapes downstairs. But yeah, all the portraits are my my work. Right?
0: Do you have much time to to do that kind of stuff nowadays?
1: Well, winter has always been my painting time, but oh, okay. unfortunately, i I just I couldn't sit still. I've been very restless, like all last year. I could never really sit still. so i was I've been in constant motion all through the pandemic. I just couldn't sit still. Uh, and I mean, i I can't think of anything, any place better to be stuck, yeah, yeah. To be stuck <laughs> at home here. I mean, it was amazing. but I was just I've been in this this mode now of nonstop activity. And to sit and paint was just I couldn't I couldn't sit still. So I guess you don't have much you know like idle time that people would call like wasted time or something. No, no, it's been very little. Uh, mm. But um, so um, and there's very little media in the house. Mm. Internet is terrible. There's no reception for um, you know for streaming and stuff like that. So so it's very uh, it's a very analog house. <laughs> um the internet is just terrible here so that limits you know what what i have access to which is fine because i'm very analog minded anyway and i love my uh, you know my my crank up victrolas and my analog phones and stuff like that so and doing and making things is my priority anyway so you know the digital aspect or the technological aspect is not a priority for me at yeah. all.
0: Obviously, this is an audio format, so most people listening right now are listening to audio, right? Um, so I think to like fully capture where we are right now, I don't know that I can do it justice with words. Um, so I will have some other stuff online that people can see pictures and some of the video I well, took today. You know
1: it's always a challenge. People want to know, people who just... Maybe I meet along the way, and if I say that, um, uh, well, I'm I'm building my own museum and sculpture park, mm. and then people want me to elaborate on that, and then I think, oh, shit, I, I got myself into trouble there <laughs> because, like, how do I really describe what's going on? It's very, it's very complicated. So I try to describe aspects of it, uh, but um, the reality, it's there's so much going on here. And I know that, and I've always acknowledged that there's a lot of stuff going on here. And I know that people come here that get completely bewildered and, um, you know, confused even. <laughs> and um, but um, so it's hard to describe. Yeah, uh, there's no elevator pitch to say what this is.
0: Well, you know, I'll link people to my stuff and obviously to your website. And you have a lot of photos of like interior, exterior. But is there anywhere else we should send people, or do you have any sort of idea? You know, when- if
1: if uh, if you just do a, a a search, an internet search for Luna Park, and that's P A R C, that's hmm. very important. Um, right.
0: There's a Luna Park in Brooklyn. Where we could-
1: <laughs> right, and that's P-A-R-K. <laughs> yeah. And the original Luna Park was in Coney Island. Yeah, also, yeah. I mean, that was that, that was a, that's a new one. That's a new Luna Park. Yeah. But the original one was uh, late 1800s. My Luna Park, uh, the namesake was in, uh, still is, in Rome, Italy. Ah. Uh, So part of my um, school, um, uh, the Rhode Island School of Design, has a branch in Rome. So I spent my senior year in Rome and there's this little amusement park. I used to go there with my friends. And um, so when I was thinking about what to name the house, I, I had a couple kind of ideas and then I remembered... Oh, Luna Park, a theme park. Hmm. And um, so that's that was the namesake. It's not Coney Island Luna Park, it's right. P-A-R-C, which is really important if you're doing any kind of uh, internet search. You have to say L-U-N-A-P-A-R-C. Um, so, um, but if you just do an internet search for a Luna Park, uh, there will be like... Thousands and thousands of images linked to all kinds of blogs and yeah, you know stuff. Uh, like I said earlier, you could just do an internet search for Luna Park bathroom, and you will get lots yeah. of images <laughs> of my famous uh, bathroom. Cool. So I'll I'll have links
0: to some of that stuff too in whatever application you're listening to this in. Um but yeah, again, thank you. This is a really cool experience, and um, I appreciate you allowing me to to share your story. yeah, on my, thank my you uh,
1: yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to share the house and uh, you know speak about the process. Um, you know, like I said, uh, people know the house. they don't necessarily know me. Mm. and uh, a lot of the sort of philosophy, my personal philosophies on art and living uh, are not always portrayed, you know. I mean, it looks like, like I said, it looks like a lot of fun and games, but there's there's a lot of work that goes into not just maintaining it, but perpetuating the project and, like, looking into the future, like, where's it all going? And, um, like I said, I just turned 60, and, uh, you know... There's a big difference from twenty-eight when I built and you know, I bought this house to thirty-two years later. I mean, there's there's limits of what I can do and how far I can push myself. Even though I can push myself, I can keep going, usually longer than many of my young interns. Well, I can literally still outrun them.
0: Does it, does it cause you stress at all?
1: This house. Yeah, thinking oh my god. Think, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable amount of stress. Uh, and especially lately, uh, you know, like oh, like with everyone, you know, like everyone's like trying to manage through the pandemic and trying to kind of negotiate their lives and maintain their lives and you know, what what I relied on to keep this project going was a lot of public support. And um that just was gone. So I've kind of just tried to Manage my own resources to try to keep the project going and trying to reinvent things, and uh, oh, it's been a real challenge. So, mm. uh, but um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it's the stress or the the challenge certainly has its rewards. I mean, it's really fun to live here. <laughs> you know, basically, it's 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 a lot of fun. You know, if I had to simplify it and make it seem, it sounds kind of like insipid, but it is, it's a lot of fun to be here. It's it's constant amusement and it's like perpetual, uh, perpetual summer camp.
0: The more people I, I talk to on this, the more you really see that like there truly is a balance to everything. Like there's, I think I said this like two episodes ago, but there's this baker in New York who is like quite acclaimed and she does really well for herself. And I read an interview with her where someone was like, Well, this is just your dream job, right? You love to bake. She's like, Yeah, it's still a job. Like, there are days I don't want to bake. Like, <laughs> there are days where I just want to like, sit and watch
1: TV, and this stresses me out too. So, yeah. Well, for I, me, I, the work, I'd say the work for me would be um, like the office work, you know, like that kind of like the business side of it. That's to me, that's the, that's the challenge. Mm. I can make anything. Like if I had to make, sit down and make stuff to sell, I, I could, you know, I could easily sit down. I have all the motivation in the world to make things, but the other side of it, to me, that's the work. Mm. The rest of it's the, the, the joy, if I can say something corny like that. No, no, but no, no. The, that, that makes sense. That's the, uh, the reality of it. So it's like the, you know, like the baking like uh, well, I mean, it's 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 all relative. I mean, it depends what your craft is. So.
0: Well, yeah. Again, you know, thank you. I uh, am always like humbled and feel really fortunate that uh, that I get to do this stuff. So this is a, a pleasure great. for me. Sounds, so thank you. That,
1: that sounds like great fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Cool. So yeah. Thanks. Great. Thank you. That's a wrap on episode 222 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much, Ricky, for having us at your place. It was an incredible experience. I've got a lot more stuff coming up. I've got more weekend trips and things in sort of like the Northeast area. So lots of stuff still coming to you, Voyagers. Thank you, Voyagers, for tuning in. And as always, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.